Good morning, folks. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Friends. This live stream may discuss trauma of all sorts to include all types of abuse. Viewers and listeners may find it unsettling and triggering. The guests on our live streams reflect the diverse set of values, morals, and ethics that may not reflect the morals, values, and ethics of the misfit Amish. If this live stream causes you distress, please seek support from your trusted folks and qualified mental health professionals as needed. And also, you may cease listening until you're able to do so again. With that being said, I'd like to welcome Rhoda. Good morning, Rhoda. Good morning. How are you? I'm, I'm good. You know, happy Wednesday. It's been a whole year this week. Uh, <laughs> my bad. How about you? Um, it's a whole year this week is a pretty good way to describe it. Um, I, I know it's a sign that you're doing well, and I know it's a sign that you're in a safe space or that, um, you've managed to grow the spaces around you to be even more safe when you have a little setback, but I did have a, a little trauma setback this week and yeah, it's, it's okay. It happens and I processed it. I'm like 90% back to where I need to be, but it's been yeah. rough. It's a journey, isn't yeah. it? And sometimes it really can feel like you're taking one step forward and two steps back, but really it's important to keep working at it because if we don't, what are we doing? Well, the yeah, it can feel like it's you're taking a step forward and two steps back, but the reality is healing isn't measured in whether or not you're struggling with trauma symptoms. It's measured um, in how well you are navigating them when they do come up. And so for me to be able to recognize what was happening, reach out to um, the people who needed to know and do those things that are actually good for me rather than just feeling trapped and stuck in it um, was huge. And so, yeah, I'm optimistic with how it went and well, I'm not, I'm not considering it too much of a setback. It's okay. There you go. Yeah. But also, like, you made a very important point, which is, like, healing isn't measured by whether or not you have trauma symptoms. Healing is measured by how you deal with it when they do come up. Yeah. And if you're putting on a mask and pretending everything is fine, where are you in your journey? Right. And from the sounds of it, that's not what happened this time, right? No, no, it wasn't. Which... Sometimes I don't know if people who, um, if survivors who are failing to process their grief, if it's so much that they're putting on a mask or if it's that they are not yet in safe and stable enough relationships to be able to face those griefs. Um, Ooh, yeah, maybe and it so is. There can be an element of dissociation that is actually very protective and healthy in its own way. And so. For people who are listening, if, if you recognize yourself as one who um, isn't processing things that need to be processed and you're dissociating, well, there's probably a reason for that. You can give yourself some grace in that. I would say be as kind to yourself as you can because, you know, sometimes you really got to give yourself space to be able to. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, some people, they benefit from exposure therapy. Some people don't. I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way. Rather, you have to find the way that works for you. But with that, therapy. With that being said, Rhoda, 
we were going to talk about bias. Yes, and we only have a limited amount of time to discuss it. Yes. So first, let's talk about what is bias. Oh, I should pull up the Google definition of that. Um, but so that I'm not just making up my own. My, my making own. up words? You don't want to make up things? No, I don't want to make up things. Um, so Google Dictionary says that bias can be a noun, which is a prejudice in favor of or against one thing, person, or group compared with another, usually in a way considered to be unfair. The okay. verb form, there's, there's a statistics form of bias as well. It's a systematic distortion of a statistical result due to a factor not allowed for in its um, derivation so the verb form of bias is to cause to feel or show inclination or prejudice for or against someone or something so if i were to bias you maybe it would be that i tell you one dramatic side of the story and i leave out information that could challenge the viewpoint that i want you to hold then i would be actively biasing you against something i think that this definition, prejudice in favor of or against one thing, person, or group, is an accurate definition um, from what I read. I also think it should be expanded to include concepts. So we can be biased for or against certain concepts, and I'm aware of that because I work in research. So, okay. so with that being said, let's talk about bias. Like you know, when you talk about the definition of like in favor of what has media historically done with Amish people as a whole? From the outside looking in, I say outside because I was not born Amish. Um, so I received some media input from wider culture. I also received some, like my view of the Amish was shaped by Mennonite people. Um, primarily through the Mennonites for me personally, I would have to say from where I'm standing, it seems as if the wider culture has promoted an extremely positive, romanticized view of the Amish and that Mennonite culture has promoted this view of the Amish that is um, affectionate in a demeaning way like these people need us to save them and rescue them um, and yet also these people are such good hard-working citizens yep. like they dehumanize us and both of those are harmful both of them take away our voices as actively Amish people and as inactive Amish people if we're non-practicing they take away our voices, they overwrite our voices, and they tell the narratives of what Amish culture is when they don't know what it's actually like. And it's harmful because what it leads to is people who are biased in a good way. What they do is, is they tend to dismiss when there are crimes committed with, within Amish communities or even when there's crimes committed by Amish people. That's harmful. Mm -hmm. And then the other part is like this demeaning thing of like, we have to have Mennonites to tell our stories. It takes away our voice. It overwrites our stories with their perceptions of 
what it is. And it also leads to looking at an entire group of people as less than humans. So we can't do that. Both of them are harmful. We can't demonize an entire group of people based on bias. We yeah. We have to have checks and balances in place. And how does this play out in when you're trying to advocate for um, rights for, for Amish people, for example? How that plays out is you get well-intentioned Mennonites who are like, oh, I'm helping these Amish people. And then they approach me. And the way they approach me literally makes my skin crawl. Because they tell me about myself, they tell me about my culture, they tell me about my beliefs, they tell me about what stuff was like, and how it's all mixed with like a, a plethora of half truth and and just it's inaccurate. Yeah, and it feels like okay. So what you're telling me is that your perception outweighs my lived experience. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is often these well-intentioned people who work in advocacy, they may put themselves in positions of power. And whether they recognize that there's a power differential between an advocate and a survivor, there is a power differential. And they don't recognize that power differential. They tell us where to go, what to do, when to wear plain clothes, when to get rid of our head coverings, or when to stop dressing plain. They tell us who we can talk to. Furthermore, they tell us who we can associate with. They tell us like, oh, well, this person belongs to this group. Because when we have favorable bias towards a specific group, what we tend to do is we tend to label them all as like acceptable and safe. Yeah. And it is incredibly difficult to recognize that you yourself have bias towards a group, especially if it's a good bias. Right. I I think we need to take the shame of holding bias away because 100% of us do hold biases and we do lean this way or that way on many things. The problem is when we don't recognize the bias we hold and we don't recognize the sources or the influencing factors of that bias. So um, in-group and out-group dynamics are a hot topic when it comes to bias. And for those of us who have left a religious group, most of us have gone through a phase where we, like our bias was towards the in-group. This was plain community, plain Mennonite community. It was all I knew. Like I wanted people to think well of Mennonites when I was, you know, 13, 14, like that meant they were thinking well of me and of my people. And it it mattered. Um, And when my people talked about persecution coming or people criticizing the Mennonites because they wanted to take away um, Mennonite freedom of religion, like those fears meant something to me. I was afraid for the people I saw as my people. But then when I was abused, my in-group bias began to shift. And I realized I was on the outside relationally of this in-group. So there, there's beginning to be some mixed feelings. I'm beginning to identify with people who find themselves on the outside. So my functional in-group is now ex-Mennonite, right? 
And there were only a few people in my life who fit that. But it meant that I was beginning to value their opinions. I was beginning to value their perspectives. In a way, you could say I was adopting their biases as my own. And then when, when you progress further, um, like when I got into advocacy, advocating for Amish or for, I'm sorry, Mennonite girls and women, then my functional in-group was that circle of advocates. And it, it was very hard to hear criticisms against um, advocates and against Mennonite advocacy in general, because this was my in-group now. My biases were for them. And I wanted to tell people like, yes, we are flawed and messed up, but hear us out. And I still, I still hold that even though I'm not as deeply engaged in Mennonite advocacy. So on some level, my bias is still towards that. Um, and also it's just logical. Like when you look at what's actually going on at some point, you have to be able to hear the truth and there are no perfect humans. So you're going to be hearing truth from imperfect humans. Thank you. Um, but what happened with this whole topic of bias came up because of um, Kucher and Kunis, right? That letter that they wrote yes. and how I was, I was thinking like, it, there's gotta be some bias here. Like they're seeing this celebrity as an in-group person with them. Mm -hmm. But that means that probably means that their view of themselves as celebrities is more salient than their view of themselves as advocates for children. Uh -huh. That's exactly what that means more than likely. Yeah. And the letters that they wrote were atrocious. Like, let's be real. Those letters were atrocious. Denial. The, which... the, the blatant denial, but also the almost throwing it in the victim's face. Like we won't even protect our own children from the very person who raped, who raped you yeah. or who sexually abused you or who sexually assaulted you. We won't protect our own children. That's like a slap in the face to a survivor. Mm hmm and it's very clear that in their minds, like to me, it's very clear that they hold this good bias towards their identity as the church because they both belong to the Church of Scientology. Yes, yes. Yeah, that came through fairly strongly in their letters. Their letters, like they have this very strong identity of the Church of Scientology. And so that identity felt personally attacked when somebody from the church committed crimes that they were close to. And because of that, they took it upon themselves to write letters and they thought they would get away with it and nobody would ever know, except those letters are now a matter of court record. Yeah. Typically, when you write letters in support of abusers, they might become a court record and often those records may be made public. And when they got called out on it, I think for me, the biggest issue that I have is that when even when they got called out on it, because we have to have our, balance, our biases challenged. And when those biases are challenged, the question is, what do you do and how do you respond? And what did they do? They doubled down. They, they did not. They did not hold the tension between their competing interests very well yeah and so, at some point that one competing interest should not be a competing interest anymore like look 
yeah. That's so rate cool. charges. You're no longer in my inner circle. Thank you. Well, and what would you say if like, you know, we know that in the police department, um, there's a significant amount of police officers who commit violent crimes towards people they are close to, especially people that live in the home with them or people they're in relationships with. And is this not especially true of male police officers specifically? I don't have studies on me at the moment. I could pull some up. Um, but I believe that research has indicated that female police officers do not tend to carry power in the same way that male police officers do. Yes, it is. You're correct. So what has that indicated? The significant levels about approximately how many police officers have committed crimes against their loved ones or people they're close to? I don't know, but I do, I do know, like, I remember hearing that it's, it's an astonishingly high number and it's higher than what we'll ever know because of in-group bias among police officers um, and how that in, influences um, how the legal process moves forward or is halted. Um, um. I am looking it up, and um, part of it is, for example, I have an, an article from Oregon that talks about police family violence fact sheet. And part of it is, is that it's about 40% which is astounding, right? That's crazy. That is just wild. Is this 40% of all police officers, 40% of male officers? Hold on. Let me go look. What percentage of female officers do this? I don't know. Because if we're going to look at police at that um, job as attractive to people who have issues relating well to power or relating well with power, then it stands to reason that it also could pull a larger number of women who have an unhealthy relationship with power. Okay. So here's the study, the studies. It's by Johnson LB 1991 on the front lines, police stress and family well-being hearing before the select committee on children, youth and families house of representatives, 102nd Congress First Session, May 20, page 32 to 48, Washington, D.C., U.S. Government Printing Office. And the second study is Knighting, P.H., Russell, H.E., and Sang, A.F., 1992, Interspousal Aggression in Law Enforcement Families, a Preliminary Investigation. It does not tell me whether or not, and I will put these studies the names of these studies in the comments for the listeners, because I think it's important. Okay. So those studies are 30 years old. I wonder what some of the more recent ones would indicate. Right. I'm looking at an article in 2014 that points out, um, what is it? That domestic violence within law enforcement um, is significantly higher than the general population. 
I think they had said it's like two to three times as high, but I'm scrolling to see if I can find it. Okay, two studies have found that at least 40% of police officer families experience domestic violence in contrast to 10% of families in the general population. That's at least 40%. Um, yep. It okay. is two to four times more common among police families than American families in general. And they often handle cases of police family violence informally. Um, I'm reading it verbatim right now. Cops mm -hmm. typically handle cases of police family violence informally, often without an official report, investigation, or even check of the victim's safety. The summary continues. This informal method is often in direct contradiction to legislative mandates and departmental policies regarding the appropriate response to domestic violence crimes. This is a repeat of what those of us who grew up plain, or you might, yeah. you can speak to this Amish experience where there's this informal investigation that means absolutely nothing and it means that everyone and like if you grew up with abuse in your home you know how like everyone means everyone everyone outside the home is left to guess whose side they take who they believe what they think is actually going on and there are like the same reason why those of us who were victims in there are hesitant to come forward is why the victims like, of police don't come forward either. And that's why, why that's do people, a bias. Why uh, it is. And, and why do people retract their statements once they have reported? Have you known anybody that has retracted a statement once they have reported? Um, I know it happens. And like, if you're talking about a child retracting a statement, I'm going to believe the child's original statement anyways. Um, just because danger, like our, our brains are so hardwired to protect us. Our brains are not hardwired to tell the truth the way that they are hardwired to protect us. And so if it's in a child's best interest to retract a statement, um, like I'm, I'm looking at potentially becoming a guardian ad litem um, for a county clo close to me. And if I were to have a child in my care who made an allegation and then retracted it when the case got intense, I would err on the side of believing what the child said when they felt most safe and when the case was least, um, least intense, if that makes sense. Can I share something about that? Go for it. I have personally known survivors who were adults who retracted their statement because they were being harassed and stalked and threatened on a routine basis. And when your life is threatened, you do what you must to survive. And until we understand that about survivors, we have a bias towards not believing survivors. And that's terrible. We need to actually believe the victims of crimes. And we need to understand that when somebody is safe, they may tell you things. And then if the threats of harm against their life escalate, they may re retract that statement Anybody, not just children, anybody may retract that statement. 
So when I talk about believing survivors, I will always try to believe the survivor. Like that is my, my, my first value as in speaking out is I will always believe the survivor. Mm -hmm. Because to me, the likelihood of the survivor or the victim of the crime lying is so low mm -hmm. that if they are lying, that is on them. That is not on me. But if I react in a way that is inherently potentially causing more harm to that survivor or to the victim of that crime, that's on me. Yeah. And I get to hold that. And that's what I need to live with. So I, I looked up statistics on retracted allegations of abuse. Um, and I'm quoting from Mothers of Sexually Abused Children. So this is a study involving children, not adults. Most victims do not disclose. In a 1991 study of 630 sexual abuse cases, 79% of victims denied abuse or were tentative in disclosure. Of victims who disclosed, 75% did so accidentally. And of those who did disclose, 22% eventually retracted the disclosure. So these are sex abuse cases. Um, this is not, I just, yeah. Yeah. Sage journals. Let me see if I can pull this up. Okay. Um, I think it's. So, Here's a, um, an article by Anna Hopkins. Um, it's a qualitative analysis of police retraction statements in the UK. And it's examining reasons for victim retraction in domestic violence and abuse. Gosh, we only have 13 minutes. I don't know how much time we want to spend on this niche of the topic of bias. But um, female victims' motivations for retraction um, are framed. I'm quoting nearly verbatim here around victim problem solving, including accepting the relationship which resulted in a discordance in proceeding with the prosecution of the abuser, rejecting the relationship, thereby rendering the prosecution as redundant or engaging in procedural problem solving um, and the effect of children where motivations were split between retracting to return to the complete family unit, including the victim as the mother, and retracting due to recognize the importance of the father's role without involvement from the mother. So it seems like if you're talking specifically about um, retractions with um, how the, the tremendous bias within the police force, how that can potentially cause, the, it sounds like you're, you're referring to like their victims. Um, which is what I think, no, this, I don't think this is exactly for DV victims of police officers, but there's, it, it's not just self-protective when you're looking at adults. It's also somehow, you know, in a weird way, child protective. Like if the court is going to say, oh, the mother's being crazy, we're going to give the children to the father, then the mother's going to retract the statement so that she looks less crazy. So she still has access to the kids. Or even I know of cases where the mother um, retracted the statement because and and resumed living with their abuser because they, the courts were going to give the children to the father unsupervised and mm -hmm. 
so abusive. And so the mother felt like the best thing she could do is legitimately find a way to be present whenever he is around the children. So he's not supervised. Yes. I have heard that before. Like it's better for a child to be abused and have their buffering parent right there, their comforting parent right there than to be abused and their comforting parent not be anywhere around. I've heard that theory in domestic violence cases before. And I just, I think it's, it's really, it highlights how much work we have to do as a culture still in the prevention of domestic violence. Uh, Allowing for divorce has gone quite a long way in decreasing um, homicides by women. Like women used to kill their husbands because they couldn't get a divorce from domestic Uh violence. Um, And it's also done so much to allow women to get out before it gets to that point. Um, but we still have quite a bit more to go. It's just, I don't know, are there other groups besides, we've looked at religion and we've looked at, at law enforcement, how much bias towards the in-group there can be and how that. Well, I just want to point out this is like sometimes um, some advocacy group or so-called advocacy groups, they might have bias towards the survivors of domestic violence. Like they don't actually understand the power differentials and they don't understand coercion. And so because of possibly because of how they grew up, what type of environment they were in, because we're shaped by all of those things. But sometimes people have bias towards the very victims that they're purporting to help. And they look at them as like helpless, like, like we must, um, we must be their heroes, their saviors, their rescuers. Like they have this whole, like, it's really cringy and gross. And that also is disturbing to survivors and victims. And it, it prevents people from reaching out when they witness that and observe that in a group. Yeah. That makes sense. So for victims who are interacting with advocacy groups, um, you might be interacting with a wall of bias that's not recognized. If you feel like you are incompetent and you might be at a stage in your healing where you truly believe you are incompetent and therefore you act out some self-sabotaging behaviors and your advocate reinforces that there should be a bit of, almost feeling like you're the eagle being pushed out of the nest type of feeling. If you are learning to believe how competent and how strong and how capable you really are. And your advocate is on the other side going, yes, you are even more competent and strong and capable. There's going to be some moments where it's like, why, why aren't they helping me? Why aren't they saving me? And it's because little birdie, you can fly on your own. Um, But that, yes, that bias towards um, seeing them as weak and helpless that is a thing um that that bias towards religion though like it we've seen you and i've both seen how in-group bias towards religion just absolutely blinds people to what's going on and it deafens them like they can literally see the court charges in front of them Uh and write letters of support um like one dude confessed to like he was reported because his sisters um disclosed sexual abuse and so this young adult was reported and when he was reported he felt like the thing you're supposed to do when you're being investigated is dump your bucket tell them everything and so he confessed to having raped an infant 
court documents. Like this is part of legal proceedings. You can't argue it. He confessed it. The church still had it in them to write letters of support. And they were offended that law enforcement, oh my gosh, they were offended that law enforcement coerced or forced or invited that confession out of him. Like he would have never confessed to raping an infant if he hadn't been in the duress of an investigation. Well, maybe that's what the whole point of duress in investigations is. Maybe there's an element of deliberate emotional duress when you're investigating someone who has sexually assaulted kids. I mean, so like, let me, let me just be clear, just so people understand this. The problem is not that he raped an infant. The problem is that he confessed it to a police officer. Yes. When he, and, yeah. and, and that that was used to help convict him of a crime. Yeah. The problem is not that he raped an infant. The problem is that, that they, they pressured him into it. They did an investigation. The police actually did their job in this case. And so it's that, in group bias is what shapes that. Like if, if you were to take those same people and ask them, do you support Mr. Stranger who raped this, you know, this helpless infant, they would undeniably say no. If you were to ask deeply, like these deeply devout religious people, what do you think about atheists who confess to raping victims? There's no in-group bias there, deeply religious versus atheists. They would undeniably say, oh, this is proof that they need Jesus. This is proof that they need God. They would see that as a problem. They would not be writing letters saying, well, this wonderful atheist is um, super supportive of our community and he does excellent craftsmanship. Like, that wouldn't be happening. You put in the chat something that I want to talk to in the last five minutes. I want to talk about in the last five minutes we have left. Military sexual trauma. That is 100% another huge thing of bias. Oh, my God. So I was active duty military when I became aware of military sexual trauma. And I want to say this, like military women are being unalived. They are being killed. Look it up. Oh, I've, I've seen some like, of the news stories and that's not even counting suicide. Like they are they are. It, it is horrific. And part of it is, is because of how you know, the military is structured like a hierarchy and you have to have like power and control, mm -hmm. right? There's very specific lines, your chain of command. And when you go and you report it, there's always, there's not supposed to be by the trainings that they have in the military. There's not supposed to be <clears throat> repercussions for reporting sexual trauma oh, that are. you experience from a military person, but there are repercussions far too often i absolutely cannot disclose any stories um because i have not personally served you are not my only friend who has served and i will just say um there is not much discrepancy between the stories that are coming out it, it's you're you're up against this wall of in-group bias and power and force and there's the legal the legal world is against uh mst survivors 
um, very much so, just like the legal world is through bias against Amish and Mennonite survivors. Yeah. Um, it is 1127. I have to go in like three minutes. Okay. I'm sorry. About the death of Vanessa Gillen. She was a specialist who was reported missing from Fort Hood. This is just one example, y'all. In April 2020, her remains were found on June 30, 2020. Her case inspired protests and led the Army to discipline more than a dozen officials. This is how deep it can go. Basically, she was dismembered, y'all. And what? 12 people got disciplined. How many yeah. people got disciplined? And um, what does discipline mean for these people? Or is more than a dozen officials. So if you're in the military and you get disciplined, you can be facing a court-martial. You may lose rank. You may lose pay. And in certain cases, you may be sent to a military prison like Fort Leavenworth. But you are subject to UCMJ action. You might lose your stand. You might get a field grade versus a... I forget the other type right this second, but I'm sharing this article. Like you will have some kind of repercussion. Like if you're in a position of power, you might be relieved of your command power and placed in an administrative position. So one person gets raped, murdered, dismembered, and participants in that crime might just lose a bit of their salary until they get promoted next time. They might just be ranked lower until they get the next promotion. Am I understanding that correctly? They might also be given extra duty, which basically gives them like, um, they might, um, like, for example, like if they are given extra duty, then they're, they're only required to be given like four hours of sleep a night or something like that. And they're working seven days a week and stuff like that. But yeah. Okay. Sleep deprivation is a punishment. Let me tell you, but it is, but still like, like that's the thing. One person pled guilty in connection to killing her. Um, I think that part of what we need to understand is that when we hold bias, we need to have other people who are challenging the bias. And when somebody challenges our bias, how do we respond to it? Because in the topics that we're discussing, it truly is a matter of life or death. Yes. How do we respond to it? When somebody comes to me and says, hey, you know, I think you said this, but really how this really affects survivors. Like I've experienced this and this is how it affects survivors. Like, what do you say to that? It behooves me to hear that. It does. And take action. And to take action, if somebody tells me like, hey, this is funny, but next time, please consider um, not body shaming people. Yeah. Even that, like that in and of itself, it behooves me to take action based on that and to hear that. Yeah. I have got to go. It was good talking okay. to you. I wish it would have been longer. Yep. It was great. Thank you for coming. Hope you have a good day. See you later. Bye.